And we're back with another episode of Backstage Chats with Women in Music. I'm your host, Thea Wood, and today I'm coming at you from Delaware, Ohio. Where is Delaware, Ohio, you might ask? Well, it's outside of Columbus, Ohio, and home to Ohio Wesleyan University, which just happens to be my alma mater. It also is the place of work, or should we say the job, or the teaching extravaganza for our next guest. She is a soprano who's a Columbus native and recently graduated from Ohio State University with a doctorate of musical arts in voice and singing health. She frequently appears in both staged and concert uh, works in central Ohio, where recent roles with opera Columbus include Kate Pinkerton in Madame Butterfly, uh, Guinevere in Camelot, Propaganda in The Magic Flute, and Yum Yum in The Mikado. Uh, she's been extensively involved with the opera um, education and outreach programs, through which she performed roles in the world premieres of the children's operas Barefoot and Somebody's Children, as well as Little Red Riding Hood and Little Red's Most Unusual Day, as we can all attest it was. <laughs> As a concert soloist, she has performed with the Columbus Bach Ensemble, the Columbus Symphony, the Westerville Civic Symphony, and the orchestras and choirs of Ohio State, Kenyon College, Otterbein University, and Denison University. She served on the voice faculty for Otterbein in uh, Otterbein University for 20 years, where she taught voice and was a frequent lecturer on vocal health-related topics. And now, of course, she is at Ohio Wesleyan University. Please welcome to the show, the woman who can tell you when the fat lady is ready to sing, Dr. Jennifer Whitehead. Hello. How Hi. Great. <laughs> it's so good to see you today. Great to see you too. Yes. I'm excited about this chat. I am too. I've <laughs> been looking forward to it for a long time. We, we were planning on doing this in September. Right. And things got rescheduled for different reasons right. beyond our control. And it's now uh, December 2nd. It's all right. We're kicking off the holidays. We're kicking off the holidays okay. the right way. And um, you are our first classical music expert. Wow. Now, we have a musicologist mm -hmm. who came on. But as far as being an instructor for performance, this is a first for us. Well, this is an honor. It's it amazing. so much fun. It is an honor for us. And mm -hmm. of course, we always like to start our interviews off with the shakedown, which is a set of questions that we ask all of our guests. So are you ready to shake it down? I'm ready. Bring it on. Awesome. Okay. Who was your first concert? Okay. You're going to laugh at this, Thea, but I actually didn't really go to rock concerts. I, I grew up in this like classical music family and uh, I was racking my brain to think if I've ever actually gone to a bona fide rock concert. So that's going to be new for your uh, for your audience, you know. It we, is, it is. We went and heard classical singers and symphony concerts, and so you know, big nerd alert, big nerd <laughs> alert right now. Um, but I really was. That was the question I was most like, oh boy, she's she's not even going to believe this. So, what was your first big live performance then that you remember? Wow, um, that is a that is a hard one. We went to a lot of uh, musical theater as a kid. I think probably one of the first things I went and saw was The Sound of Music. Oh, good one. And it was just amazing and transformative, and I loved it. I loved it because I was a little kid, and there were kids in it, you know? And um, 
I would come home from these things and want to act it all out on stage myself. My sister and I would come home from these things and like do our own little plays in the living room. And it was awesome. And <laughs> my parents were both um, music teachers. Um, okay. Were, so it's in the family. Oh, it's in the family. Yeah. Family business. My dad was a high school choral conductor and my mom, God bless her, was a middle school music teacher. Oh yeah. Oh gosh. I remember <laughs> middle school music classes. <laughs> Believe it or not. It's a gift. Okay, so so that leads to our next question, because this is probably, I'm assuming, around middle school or high school time. Mm -hmm. What was the first album you bought with your own money? Well, this is funny, because, like, I didn't go to, I, I, we really weren't allowed to go to, like, rock concerts, but I was, it was the 80s, okay? So I'm sure, I don't totally remember, but I think it was probably Chicago. Oh, you know, love that '80s band mm -hmm. sound. Still love big, it. very big sound, big full and sound, dramatic. Oh, totally, very dramatic. That's why you loved it. Yes, I love the dramatic love ballads. You know, <laughs> so that was it. Was probably Chicago. Chicago. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, which artist or band is in heavy rotation on your playlist right now? Um. I'm pretty eclectic in what I listen to. Um, I do listen to classical music, but I also listen to a lot of pop just for a break. I like anything 80s. Mm -hmm. Love me some Journey. Oh, okay. yeah. Love it. Don't stop believing, girl. Do not stop believing. Love Journey. Um, I love musical theater. I love, um, he actually just passed away over the weekend, Stephen Sondheim. Oh, yes. Anything yes. Sondheim. And as far as uh, pop music, I actually like Taylor Swift. I think she has great songs. You're a Swifter. Swifty? What do um, they call him? I think it's a Swifty. Swifty. Yeah. A Swifty. You're a Swifty. Yeah. Oh, well, fantastic. <laughs> All right. Well, then, that leads to which woman has had the most influence on your career? I thought about that a lot, too. And I have to say uh, a woman named Karen Peeler, uh, Dr. Karen Peeler. She um, was a professor of mine in graduate school, and uh, both in my master's degree and in my doctorate. Tiny little woman from Texas, um, and she was a wonderful voice professor. She just really cared about her students. She really encouraged me to pursue vocal health and was one of the reasons I got into the singing health specialization mm. in my doctoral degree. Mm -hmm. um, she was hard on me. She was a very honest person. She was hard on me. She, would, she was not afraid to get into it with you in a voice lesson if she thought you weren't performing up to par. Um, <laughs> but, you know, she liked me and she made me feel like I could do it, like I could be a professional musician. And um, she was very inspirational to me. She was, um, she was also legally blind and had made a career for herself as a wonderful professor, writer, singer, um, just a fierce person. Well, they say if you have one sense that isn't functioning fully, the other senses are heightened. So yeah. this sounds like it was right up her alley and, yeah. you know, meant to be. She was just kind of a tour de force. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I love that. Well, an ode to her. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Peeler, I'm going to send this to you. There you go. You should. <laughs> uh, okay, next question. If you could have dinner with any woman dead or alive, who would it be? That one's easy. I would have dinner with my mom. Oh. Yeah. My mom passed away when I was 15, mm -hmm. um, uh, breast cancer. And so, yeah, I would definitely love to have dinner with my mom. She, she'd be coming back to a world she certainly didn't recognize, you know. She died in 1983, and we'd have to explain cell phones and podcasts. All of it. All of it. 
The internet. The internet, yeah. <laughs> I think about that all the time. I think, man, if my mom came back, she would really think she was on an alien planet. I Yes, absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. But kind of in a good way, look at how mm-hmm. many different musical opportunities have come forth for women in particular. Absolutely. With all of this technology development. Absolutely. You absolutely. bet. You bet. Yeah. So she might be pretty excited about that. I think she would. She's watching. She knows. Aww. <laughs> She knows. My mom. Okay, next. Uh, This is the last one, and it's a doozy. I'm ready. What is one life goal you'd like to accomplish before climbing that golden stairway to heaven? This is a hard question because um, if you say it out loud, you know, you feel like, man, I really have to do it. Um, I love to write, and I would love to publish a novel. I really, really I really would. a non a nonfiction or fiction fiction okay I mean fiction do you have a do you have a storyline idea I have lots of them like I ha- I keep this little notebook of ideas and uh, writing is a really strong ancillary interest of mine like I almost majored in English or mm-hmm. journalism oh good um, uh-huh. when I was an undergrad yes so I I do like to write and I like creative writing I like um, I like editing, actually. I like doing all that stuff. So I, yeah, I'm in the midst of trying to get a, a book published on uh, practice habits. That's what I did my um, doctoral work, my doctoral dissertation on, rather. Okay. And so I have that at a publisher right now, and I'm, I'm working on that. But I would, I would love to write um, something fiction and publish it. For fun. Just for fun. I think that's a great, that's a great goal. Adding, adding more art to the world in a different way than singing. And I think most artists, I think most people have a couple areas Mm -hmm. that they, um, a couple orbits they like to, (laughs) to to move in. You know, I I think, so a lot of musicians love art. They're Mm -hmm. good at visual art. I'm not, but, um, you know, they like to do that or they like to write or just, I I think it comes out in different ways. And a lot of the uh, folks that I worked with in high tech were, most of them were musicians, Mm -hmm. whether it was hobby or whether it was previously professional or just playing around. Um, They, for whatever reason, I think uh, software programming Mm -hmm. and the rhythms and how that works with are very congruent to what it's like to play an instrument or compose. I'm sure. There's, There's a creative... There's a creative gene in there. There know? is. Yeah, mm-hmm. A lot of similarities yeah. in how that all comes together. I think so. So, mm-hmm. awesome. Well, guess what? Well, we survived the shakedown. I'm, I'm feeling good. <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling good, good. too. What we're going to do is we're going to take a few minutes to hear a message, and we'll be right back. All right. Did you know that in the wake of the pandemic, 25% of women in music don't know where their next dollar is coming from, and 33% report suffering a mental health crisis? Help artists connect with event hosts for paid gigs through Horizon Music's all-female musician marketplace. Donate today, and you could be helping the star of tomorrow. Visit backstagechats.com and be the change. Horizon Music would like to thank our friends at Tito's Handmade Vodka, Gibson Brands, and Linda Perry for supporting women in music. If your business would like to support our nonprofit, please email info at horizonmusic.org. That's info at H-E-R-I-Z-O-N music.org. Let's get back to the show. And we're back. 
We are at Ohio Wesleyan University in the booming metropolis of Delaware, Ohio, <laughs> where I went to college and where our guest, Dr. Jennifer Whitehead, now teaches uh, vocal classes and vocal health at Ohio Wesleyan. And she touched upon this in the shakedown, and I want to jump in with that, which is what exactly do we learn in a vocal health curriculum or agenda? What is it that we don't know that we need to know? Sure. Um, so vocal health is obviously something that is extremely important for singers. You're maintaining your instrument. Um, and the tricky thing about being a singer, of course, is that you're carrying your instrument around with you all the time. So it's exposed to everything you're exposed to. Your cold, uh, the alcohol you're drinking, the environment, the allergens, all of it. Mm -hmm. So um, when I began my doctoral work, you could pick, obviously, what you wanted to do your studies in outside of music. You had so many credits you could take outside of your area. And Ohio State was pioneering this great uh, singing health program, and it really was amazing. Um, we worked with surgeons, like laryngologists. We got to take classes taught by surgeons. Um, I'm sure they were like, I can't even believe I have to teach these people. But they were great. Actually, they were really nice. And so a lot of vocal health, the first thing you have to be grounded in, you have to understand the anatomy and physiology of your instrument, of the voice itself. You have to learn about the structures of the larynx and the breath support system um, so that you know how they function because you can't really know how something goes wrong or how to maintain it if you don't know what's going on. So a lot of it is about learning anatomy and physiology and then learning how to take care of your voice, the things that harm it, the mm -hmm. things that help it, the ways you can protect it mm -hmm. as you're teaching or as you're singing, the red flags. So really in, in, in the way that you would talk to athletes about how to avoid injury. It's right. the same thing when we're dealing with, with singing and singers because you really are a vocal athlete. And what are the top one or two causes or things that you find are people are doing that are injuring their vo their vocal cords or their voice? Um, well, surprisingly, you would think injuries for singers come from singing. They usually don't. Oh. They come from how we speak, okay? Because when we sing, you know, think about it. You're, you're trained as a singer. So when you're singing, you're thinking about how you're breathing, how you're producing the sound, because it's drilled into you through your voice lessons. Um, but when you're speaking, sometimes that's not on our radar. So I would say vocal, we call it vocal abuse because that's really what it is when we heard our voice. Talking too loudly, um, talking too fast without coming up for air, um, talking in a wrong range. Uh, you'll hear particularly a lot of um, young women who want to kind of talk like this because somehow our culture has decided that's sexy. It's really not, and it's really not good for you. So talking in a range that's inappropriate for your voice, um, just things like going to a sporting event and yelling too loud all the time. Oh, me after a concert? Yeah. Oh, it's terrible. Or rock concerts. Yeah, exactly. Or um, a big one, even for young singers that are in college, you know, they, they go out, they go to clubs, they go to bars, you're talking over noise, you're talking to your friends. Um, 
So just anything that you could think of that would be probably not great for your voice, mm -hmm. like yelling yeah. or drinking a lot, that's kind of some, some top ways that we would injure our voice. Being dehydrated, Being I would dehydrated. assume, is oh, probably a big one. Huge. People don't drink nearly enough water. No, ma'am. Mm -hmm. No, they do not. And that is huge because that really keeps all the tissues and the mucous membranes around your cords hydrated, and that's really important. Yes. Sure. Sure. And then, uh, so is, is teaching health, vocal health, one of kind of the requirements of somebody who is a music major, or is it just one of the, it, I shouldn't say just, or is it a, an elective that people add on depending on what they're doing? So for instance, maybe I'm a tuba player, but I don't want to know my vocal health, but is that how that works? Is it's an elective that works into a vocalist program? Depends on where you are. Mm -hmm. um, at bigger schools that have um, a performance degree, like a Bachelor of Music degree, often there will be a, what we call a pedagogy class, a vocal pedagogy class that for sure music educators will have to take, and mm -hmm. a lot of times singers where um, they'll spend like maybe a semester learning anatomy, physiology, um, kind of taking a deep dive into the science mm -hmm. of singing and 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 kind of treating it clinically and then maybe going into comparative pedagogies and ways to help your students um, and yourself maintain your vocal health. Right. We do not have a discrete uh, class in that here okay. at Ohio Wesleyan, but I do teach vocal health in, in two ways. Well, three ways. Occasionally I lecture on it. Mm -hmm. um, for our theater majors and our... I was just going to say theater would be a big one. Big one, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, in voice lessons, a lot of that gets incorporated because I'm always talking to my students about breathing, about hydration, about how to use your voice. Hey, your recital's coming up. You need to be quiet. You're tired. Your voice is tired. You sound tired today. I want you to be quiet. Mm -hmm. um, we talk about... It gets incorporated a lot into the lessons, how to take care of your voice. And I also teach a voice class for um, music ed majors who are not singers, like you mentioned, the tuba player. So they take methods classes in, in the instruments that are not their instruments. So as part of that vocal methods class, mm -hmm. we do talk about vocal health. And because they're music ed majors, I try to really steer it toward how you can take care of your voice sure. when you're teaching band for a bunch of, you know, eighth graders. And oh, right, yes. you know, and talking that makes over sense. Them, totally talking over them, or, or or dealing with a marching band outside, and mm -hmm. um, just working on how to be, how to use your voice in a healthy way. Absolutely, and you know, I, our audience isn't. We have musicians, we have students, sure. but we also have professional people, women who are out in um, in networking circles mm -hmm. who are speaking on stage. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is an important uh, lesson for them to take on so that if you're traveling around the country and speaking on panels or in front of large groups of folks, this is going to take a toll. Oh yeah. It's a big deal. And people need to understand when we think of voice professionals, we, we tend to think of singers, right? Maybe teachers, but really anybody who uses their voice professionally, you're a voice professional. You're I a am. Master. Yeah. I am. And, um, you know, maybe a, an attorney, a trial attorney that's getting up and talking in court or um, a teacher, somebody who does phone sales, Any anybody who uses their voice as part of making their living is really in some way a voice professional. And uh, this instrument that we carry, it is, it is resilient. It's tough, but it's also fragile. 
And people need to know how to take care of, of their voices because your voice does say something about you. It does. It conveys a lack of authority or authority. And the one thing that I hear is the, uh, the biggest affliction is our vocal nodes. Uh -huh. Can you explain, please, for our listeners what a vocal node is and what causes it? I can indeed. Um, of, we call them, the, the, the real term is vocal nodules. We say nodes sometimes, but vocal nodules. And what they are, they're little calluses that form on the edges of your vocal cords um, due usually to abuse of some sort. Um, you see them a lot in cheerleaders, you'll see them in coaches, um, you'll see them in singers sometimes, usually not necessarily from singing unless it's somebody that just really isn't a trained singer usually, but, but a classical singer will get them. I had a set of them when I was in uh, my master's degree. Oh, so I, they actually will go away. They will go away if you catch them early enough and you get therapy for them. Usually you have to go through vocal therapy. I was, I was going through, I kind of had a perfect storm going. So I had, um, I was working on my master's degree. I was married. Um, we were poor <laughs> and I was working all the time. I was teaching all the time, adjuncting at several different schools. When I wasn't teaching, I was singing or mm -hmm. practicing. Just wasn't getting any rest locally. Yeah. Drinking too much coffee, not mm -hmm. enough water. I was devastated because I knew a lot about vocal health and it was devastating to get that diagnosis and feel like I had failed at everything I knew to do. Um, the good news with nodules is that if you catch them early, if you get yourself to a doctor, as soon as you're sort of dealing with um, some symptoms that we can talk more about, um, if you get them while they're small and soft, they can usually be eradicated with some therapy. Okay. When you get into a situation where they have gone on for years and they are hard and callous-like, then you're looking at a surgery that has the potential to, to, to wreak some permanent havoc, even if you have a really good surgeon. Right. Um, so the, one, one interesting fact about, about nodules is that they're always bilateral, meaning that they're, they're always a nice little matched set on your vocal cords. There's one on one cord and one on the other cord. Oh, interesting. I did not know yeah. that. And they're at the same place. So what starts to happen in a person with nodes is that the cords will only close at those bumps mm -hmm. because they're protruding. And so the sound is very breathy and very hoarse because there's no closure of the cords, right? Um, yeah, like Marge Simpson. Yeah, very Marge Simpson. Yes. You can also get something called a vocal polyp and that's usually unilateral. It's just on one cord. And that's more of a one-time injury. Gotcha. You know, yelled way too loud at a game or a party. Nodules build up over time through a pattern of abuse. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Well, uh, the first thing that goes through my head is, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to be so much more careful now at concerts <laughs> because I do tend to sing along, but I don't sing along. I scream along mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, because it's so loud. Mm -hmm. And um, I, now I know what's going on with my vocal cords at the yeah. end when my husband says, I don't know. I can't hear you. I can't understand you because you've totally blown out your voice. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, that's yeah. kind of what I do. Your voice sounds okay. Uh, so far, <laughs> knock on wood, but you know, you haven't heard me directly after a concert either. Oh boy. Now, of course, I'm going to jump into, um, cause we've talked a little bit about some of the things that you can do to help prevent that. Uh, one of the things that is a big trend right now where to me, it's a, I'm going to intro this a certain way. A, it's interesting because it 
helps people maybe break into the music business um, as a vocalist who may not otherwise have, but B, it can also be considered by many, uh, we'll say orthodox practitioners, a, a cheat or a lazy person's way out. And that is the advent of auto-tune and its extreme use in popular music. And I'm not talking about just pop, but modern music as in, you know, country music, jazz, uh, metal, anything. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and when I first mentioned that I'd like to discuss that with you, you had very strong opinions. (laughs) So let's share those opinions with our audience today. (laughs) Okay. Well, um, I think the first thing we have to do is, is define auto-tune. Yes, um, I think that's a great way to start. Yeah. It's a mechanism, it's a digital mechanism that can alter the pitch or the sound of a person's recorded voice. All right. Um, I believe it kind of, be, its origins were perhaps in the, in the mid to late 90s. Um, and, but it wasn't as widely used at that time. No, and wasn't it originally invented to help geologists with finding things underground? I think so. I think so. It yes. was, it was a scientific yes. tool. Yes. And I think its origins, even in music, were um, the idea of creating sound effects. So altering the voice in a way that you could tell it was being altered mm-hmm. to make it sound um, more electronic and maybe blend with an electronic instrumental sound, like to create a cool effect for part of a song or for a song that an artist was doing, but not necessarily everything they sang. Right. But I think it's evolved, and I think this is where it's problematic, into this thing where um, we just digitally alter bad singing sometimes um, to come up to a, a pitch that's pleasing when in fact perhaps the person wasn't singing in tune very well. Um, and so we're kind of curating a sound. And I and I think it's just another way that the digital age is affecting our sense of reality. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh, good point. Think about everything that's curated. You know, you look at somebody's Instagram feed and I work with college students, right? We see a lot of depression and anxiety in students. And I do think one of the culprits in that is social media where they see, oh, everybody else has this perfect life. Everybody else, you know, the perfect pictures. Well, I think autotune is in some ways a musical equivalent of that. Yeah. You hear this and I think it plays out in creating false expectations in aspiring young singers. I think it does that in two ways. I think first of all, they hear something and they think, well, I can never be that perfect, so I won't even try. Uh, you know, I won't even try. Or, and I think maybe this is the more common thing that happens, anyone can be an amazing singer. <laughs> <laughs> and that's yeah. not true. No. And it's okay that it's not true. It's okay that it's not true. Not everybody has to be an amazing singer, but I think we are giving kids this false idea Um and another thing they do in auto-tune, and this, this is actually funny. I had a student that was dealing with this. They take out breaths. You never hear somebody breathe. Mm-hmm. It's just like this completely seamless sound that goes on for measures and measures and measures. And I was working with a high school kid a couple years ago, and they were singing some, they were working on some pop song, and they would not breathe. And I was like, listen, you have got to take breath. Okay, we're going to put a breath in there. Well, the recording isn't isn't that way. 
Right. I was like, yeah, because they edit it out. They edit it out, but you still have to do it. And you know, it, that's not the only place where they do that because uh, Jennifer, when I was getting trained to record voiceovers for uh, PSAs and little segments on a uh, public radio station, they taught me how to remove my breath mm-hmm. in between sentences. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, you can just take that out so it sounds nice and clean. And that, which, okay, I understand where they were coming from, but like you said, it wasn't reality. And then it totally opened my eyes up to how I listen to ads, how I listen to podcasts, how I listen to so many different things, because you do not hear that human element of inhale. Yeah. I think it creates distance between the artist and their audience. You know, you think about people who there are, and there are people who really, one of the things they dislike most about auto-tune is that it takes out the little imperfections that make people seem human, mm-hmm. that, that make people feel connected. Think about somebody like Bob Dylan. Yeah. Bob Dylan couldn't sing. He had great songs, but he, his, that was not a pretty or a really pleasing sound, but it resonated. Yes. And and I say he was a vocalist, not a singer, because he had his own way of carrying his poetry, basically. That's right. Into a musical sound. And it was okay. It was. Well, it gave him, it made him stand out. Exactly. And that's one of the things that I have an issue with, with a lot of modern music today, that auto-tune makes everybody kind of sound a little Mm -hmm. bit alike, which is Mm -hmm. very digital, especially if they go overboard. Mm-hmm. And um, it it takes, to me, some of the character away. Absolutely. I mean, I want to hear differences in my singers' voices. Yeah. If we all sound alike, how is someone going to stand out? That's exactly right. And it's kind of funny that this is happening at a time in society when we're talking so much about diversity. But yet, it is this homogenized sound just across the board. And it's almost like it's created... I think this is another thing that bothers me about it. It's almost created to be background noise. Mm. We don't want there to be anything in it that is um, that perks my ear up because it might be a little imperfect or because um, it, the sameness goes away. It's it's like we're creating this sort of pop and rock elevator music mm-hmm. that's a soundtrack for people's lives versus something I really want to sit down and listen to. And really get into. And really get into and really get a sense of the artist. Right. You know, get a sense of the person. Um, I also think it widens the chasm a lot between the classical music world and the pop music world. And I hate that that's a chasm because a lot of people want to learn um, techniques for singing pop music. And it's hard to teach in a realistic way when what they're hearing is in no way connected to an actual technique because it's been digitized. Gotcha. Okay, now that's an interesting point in talking about teaching classical voice versus modern. Mm -hmm. Uh, We did have a musicologist on the show. Uh, Her name is Kelly Glover. She teaches down in Texas uh, at uh, Texas State University now. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that she experienced going to a historically black college university was that they were only taught classical techniques and were actually told that teaching that modern vocals were bad for your voice Mm -hmm. were actually unhealthy what are your thoughts on that uh i don't know if it's a philosophy or if it is a science or what have you but what are your thoughts on that 
I think that's unfortunate. And I have, I know singers personally, good singers and good teachers who feel that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, I, I think of it very much like we have to be pragmatic as teachers. People are going to sing pop and rock and gospel, and they're going to want to do musical. I taught at a big musical theater school. Otterbein University is a BFA musical theater program, elite program. Um, kids have to learn how to belt and sing for the theater. And if we're just saying, no, that's bad, and I'm not going to teach you how to do that, they're going to do it anyway, and they're going to hurt themselves. Right. Okay? So I think that's that's number one. I think the the problem is not that the classical technique and the other techniques have to be at odds with each other. It's that we have to think of the classical technique as foundational and then move. I, I tell students sometimes it's like the hub of a wheel. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the spokes all come off of that. In a very similar way, you think about dance. Ballet is the classical hub of that. Okay. Right. Most people that are really great dancers, Broadway, tap, whatever, a lot of them have a background in ballet because it's where they got their start. It's where they learned how to be with their body and know their body. Same with singing. We teach people how to breathe. We teach people how to have an open, relaxed throat. We teach people how to stand and have good posture. We teach people how to aim their vocal sound up and out. We start there, and then we can say, okay, now we're going to work on belting for the musical theater. We're going to work on a pop sound, but we're still going to do that in a healthy way. Right. We're going to manipulate some of these spaces in our throat a little differently than maybe we would if we were singing opera, but we're still going to be healthy about it. We're not going to check our technique at the door. Right. And you brought up the word posture. Mm-hmm. Huge for me. Mm-hmm. I was an image consultant for many years, and one of the things that I taught was how to check your posture on a regular basis because clothes are actually made for us to stand up straight, and that is how the mannequins are set up. Mm-hmm. So they're naturally not going to look as good as if you're hunched over, not to mention that you can't breathe as deeply when you're hunched over, mm-hmm. um, and it it creates more tension and stress at a time when you might already be stressed. Yes. Uh, So that's really important. But I would think that that's probably something that through the years with everyone huddled over their phones and computers, it's probably gotten a lot worse, hasn't it? It's bad. Oh yeah, it's bad. And I call it at at college, I call it the backpack look because Uh they schlep around all day with their backpacks and they're they're literally bowed over. Mm -hmm. And, um, Oh yeah, we talk a lot about posture because again, everything you need to say mm-hmm. is housed in the carrying container of your body. Mm-hmm. So if you are not standing up straight, if the ribs aren't open and the lungs cannot be at their optimum position, you can't get a good breath. And it also, I also say sometimes to my students, poor posture says something about you that probably isn't true. You're a really confident performer. You really like to sing, but your shoulders say, I'm embarrassed to be here. I'm sorry, I'm taking up space in this room. Mm-hmm. So they, they, our posture conveys something about us and it facilitates good or bad singing. Exactly. And kind of building upon that, let's talk about the fat lady singing. Yeah. <laughs> because uh, it's, it, 
this actually, I was surprised. I thought that that was a saying that went back hundreds of years. And I think when I looked it up in Wikipedia, it only started in the 70s. I think it was yeah. 1975, 1976. And it just caught on. And mm-hmm. it caught on in the sports world. It was yes. actually used quite a bit in the sports world and moved on. Uh, so there are myths and truths behind all of this. In talking about posture, we talk about tone. We talk about resonance. Do fat ladies sound better, Jennifer? No. (laughs) No. People who are taking care of their bodies um, and are at a good weight for their their structure sound good. All right. The fat lady thing, um, I think it probably originated, if you go all the way back, I think you're right, the phrase became popular later in the the 20th century. Yes. But... If you think about the origins of opera, and you go back to early opera, um, they were performing in small opera houses. Um, The music, Baroque and classical music, was lighter, um, more florid. As we moved into the Romantic period in the late 19th century, composers like Verdi, for instance, were writing bigger works, you know, more expansive vocal lines. And... The types of voices that were good and suited to singing that kind of repertoire tended to be housed sometimes in bigger people. Okay, um, so it was the it was the tone that they had, no matter their size. It was yeah, just the, they were just bigger people. Maybe a, a longer neck, um, a bigger rib cage. Um, I think some of that was just organic in that way, and so then I think it got convoluted into something that was associated with opera that that and that level of performance that level of performance and um i read an interview once actually with marilyn horn who was an amazing uh, operatic mezzo-soprano and she said that she thought some of the stereotype came from the fact that singers in general and this of course it's a generalization and she was talking a little bit more back in the day weren't very good at taking care of their bodies. You know, they would perform and then eat really late at night. Um, crash. It crash. You know, you're on the road. You're lonely. You're eating emotionally. Hey, this happens now. Of course. This happens now. You see singers who they get into that routine, which is very hard on your body, yes. and they gain weight. Yes. Not always exercising. I mean, we all know how hard it is to eat healthy when you're on the road and you're out of your routine and you may not be in control of what you're cooking or... You're stuck on a bus. Yes. Mm -hmm. Or you're flying everywhere. You just, singing is a very demanding career. It is, it is not, it looks so glamorous from the outside and there is glamour to it, but people who are performing for a living, there's a lot to it. Mm -hmm. There's, there's a lot of being away from, from the people you love. There's a lot of um, just being alone, late nights, weird schedules. So I think that contributes too. But one thing that's really interesting is we're really in opera now. We're really moving away from that. Okay. It's becoming almost the opposite issue. Um, there was a, a soprano, Deborah Voigt, who was fired. Um, this was probably about uh, 10, 15 years ago for being too heavy. And this was a, this was a world-class voice. I mean, this was somebody that was like, this wasn't a newcomer. This was somebody that was an amazing singer. This is shocking. So this means that the industry's almost swung the other yeah. way yeah. in its perception. Yeah. And now it's about 
the image over the quality of performance? I would not say it's necessarily over the quality of performance. I still think the classical singer is held to a pretty high standard. But what is happening is some of opera's audience from the you know mid part of the, the 20th century, they're, they're older. That audience is dying off. And opera is trying to remain relative. Um, relevant, not relative. Relevant gotcha. in, in a changing in a changing world and for, for a new demographic. So you think about millennials, mm -hmm. okay? They have grown up in a digital age. They have grown up watching, you know, all kinds of television and movies. They're on social media. They're very visual. And whereas an older audience was probably more willing to suspend disbelief, as we call it in the theater, um, and, and watch to, you know, really large people uh, on stage be the romantic leads, I, I don't think that people are as willing to do that now. And um, I know that that probably um, sounds discriminatory, but I, but I think it's, it is a reflection of our, it's all part of the same thing in our culture, Thea. It's all part of the, the curated image. And so if you were to look at a magazine like Classical Singer or Opera News, and you would look at an edition from say 20 years ago, it would look very different than the people you see in there now. People are a lot more buff. Um, there's a lot more pressure to maintain not just this great singing voice, but also to, to really look the part. Right. Mm -hmm. Probably more so like what you're seeing on television and movies yes. than you would have 20, 30 years ago on stage. Correct. Got Correct. it. Got it. Well, hey, you know what? Empower to people like Lizzo. Yeah. Who come out and, you know, they flaunt it. They don't just, they're not just saying, right. here's my body, but they're saying, in your face, here's right. my body. Uh, it, it's it's such a dichotomy for me because the you have society saying be yourself. You should it should all be based on performance and character and who you are and your values. Mm -hmm. And then, but yet there's this prevailing mm -hmm. pattern of that prejudice. True, that and happens I, on if you click your heart or if right. you bypass it or you swipe left or you swipe right. Absolutely. We've, we're so visual. Now, do I think that to a degree, it's been a good thing that singers are taking better care of their bodies? Do I think that it's going to give some people more longevity in their career? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think it's like anything else. It ha there has to be a middle ground there. There right. has to be middle ground. And um, at the end of the day, we need to let our singers be artists and singers. We're not, we're not there to look at a model we're there to hear amazing singing. Right. You know, and so I think I think that cuts both ways. But yeah, I think the the fat lady singing, I think it it has very old origins. I even read something about it. You may have come across this too, that they said there was a woman who used to sing God Bless America at the end of every baseball game, like back in the back in the early part of the 20th century, like the Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh -huh. And she was this big woman. And so that's kind of where the phrase also had, had carrying power into the 20th century. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> it stuck, though. I mean, it, it, where did I get it from? I'll tell you. Bugs Bunny. Ah, yeah. Sorry, right. guys, but anybody who's watched Bugs Bunny knows yeah. that the opera singers yeah. were always drawn to be very yes. large, with the exception of when Bugs became an opera singer, because <laughs> Bugs was always stringy. Yes. But uh, <laughs> With the horns and the brass bra. The big, and the, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. And, and people also think, now I will say this too, the people who sing, you know, opera, opera has genres within it. 
right? Just like anything else. So the same person that is singing Mozart is not the same person that is singing Wagner. And the bigger rep tends to come out of bigger bodies. So there is some truth to that. You're not probably going to find a little, you know, five foot, 95 pound woman singing Wagner. It's just not going to happen. Right. So there, there so is, going back to that resonance and yeah, and how, the structure just of the, the physique, structure. the structure of the physique. Physique, just your anatomy. Gotcha. Yeah. So we're getting ready to wrap up our time together. And I'd like to ask you what your advice is for whether it be women in music who want to use their voice uh, or uh, women and uh, men in the professional world who use their voice for a living, what are, what would you say is the number one thing they can start doing today to protect their voice and use it to their advantage? Like, what do you see is like, wow, when people do this, that's when they get it. Mm-hmm. I think that probably um, we can all hydrate more. That's something very tangible you can do. Um, I think you can think about things that are good for you. It's not a great mystery, the things that are good for the voice. They're the things that are good for your body. Getting your sleep, eating right, exercising, drinking your water, all the things that we know to do but that are really hard to do, right? Um, I think a big thing, you know, when when you have a a singing health connection and people know you're a voice teacher. I get asked all the time, oh, you know, I've got this cold and I've got, I've got this performance coming up or I've got this speech to make. And what do I do? I'm, I'm a horse. What do I do? And what people want you to say is, um, well, take eye of newt and <laughs> some frog skin and go out during a full moon. And, you know, they want you to come up with this concoction, right? And really what we need to do when we're tired vocally is we need to shut up. The best thing you can do to take care of your voice is be quiet. Budget it. Think of your voice having a budget. We, we understand having a finite amount of money. We have a finite amount of voice in a day, in a week. So just being quiet when you're tired, staying hydrated. And if you're really somebody that is concerned about your voice use and concerned about knowing more, take some voice lessons. You don't have to be a great singer to take voice lessons. You can benefit just from learning how to breathe and learning how to 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 focus your sound a little bit more. Excellent advice. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, everybody. It has been a thrill to come back onto uh, my alma mater's campus, Ohio Wesleyan University, and visit here with Dr. Jennifer Whitehead, who is taking time out today to give us fun stories about (laughs) opera, who has taught us a little bit about our vocal health and some of the things that we can do, and uh, busted some myths. Yeah. Yes. We try. We do what we can, man. Yes, excellent. And if people want to reach out to you, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, I'm, I'm actually, I'm not on Insta. I'm more of a words person, but I'm on Facebook, Jennifer Whitehead. Um, and I'm here at Ohio Wesleyan at jmwhitehh at edu. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It's been such an honor. And everybody, you know, as we always say, we love sharing the stories of these women. Why? Because they remind us to be dreamers, rule breakers, and rock stars. Until the next time, it's a wrap. Backstage
Chats with Women in Music is a production of Horizon Music Foundation, a nonprofit based in Austin, Texas. Giving credit where credit is due, we'd like to thank folks for their contributions to this episode, including Zhang Tong for the audio production and editing, Bianca Garcia and her social media team, including Kira Vasquez, Pamela Sierra, Victoria Artel, Sofia Valverde, and Christy Loach. And last but not least, Pond5 for our theme music. Your donations help make this podcast possible. Please visit horizonmusic.org to donate today. This podcast is the property of Horizon Music Foundation and is protected by copyright law. Use of this podcast is for personal and non-commercial purposes only. No other use of this production, including and without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing may be made without prior consent from the Horizon Music Foundation. Submit all requests to info at horizonmusic.org.